The E-Kids, if you have permission, and I want to invite everyone else, if you have a Bible, uh, maybe an app on your phone or a tablet, to go with me to uh, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. And uh, a couple introductory things. Um, if you, um, we have some great resources out here in the lobby area, and uh, th- there's some, some periodicals and books and things like that, but some devotionals. And I just want to encourage you to check those out. And then um, there's some other things from like uh, Truth for Life. Jamie and I get like a message of the month thing. It's like if you, like there's some really good sermons on CD as mentioned during Sunday school. Um, and if you want to, um, uh, we, usually after we would get those, we'll put those out there. There's also some magazines. Uh, there's like some, I mean, even like to save you some, some subscriptions. Like there's a Christianity Today out there. There's some uh, Baptist Bulletin and some things about millennials. And just anyway, so those are out there. And so share them, take them, that type of thing. And um, the, and we just, those, that's for you. So please take advantage of that. Acts chapter 20. Um, I think I'm on here. And uh, you want to turn this one off or something? I hear an echo. I'm sorry. I pre- there we go. I don't hear it now. Do you guys hear an echo? Good. All right. Thank you. And I appreciate it, Mike. And I, I hate to even say anything, but I figure that's how it's going to go. All right. So today in Acts chapter 20, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, a message, uh, two parts of a message I'm going to call Paul's Fight Song. And so this is the beginning of a two-part message in Acts chapter 20 um, that really gives the summation of Paul's life. And um, appreciate Josh last week preaching and heard wonderful things and got to catch some of it uh, online. And uh, those are available out there now. So, uh, so, so thankful for that relief of being able to be gone and know that God's word is being faithfully proclaimed and shared here. That's, that's awesome. Um, so... Uh, this chapter of Acts chapter 20 is ending Paul's third missionary journey as he's on his way back to Jerusalem and then he'll have that trial and on his way to Rome where he'll be imprisoned and then to Spain and finishing uh, the book of Acts. Um, And so he really gives in verse 24 a summation of his life. And so I want to go there and then we're going to walk back through the passage here. So Acts chapter 20 In verse 24, this is what God's word says. But I do not account my life any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will see me see my face again. Let's pray together. Father, I ask that you would help us as we look into this text. God, I pray that you'd use it. Thank you for your spirit that uses this sword. And I pray that you would do your work now. Lord, I pray that this would be an encouragement and blessing to those, the dear ones in your church that need this and that we'd all be open to growth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Paul says, I don't consider my life, or I consider my life of no value. And he says, one translation says, my purpose is to finish my course that I've received from the Lord. Or the ESV said, if only I may finish my course. Um, another translation says, my only aim 
is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me. So basically, Paul has this singular focus that is like the summation of his life. And so we're in a transition passage here. We've left him, there was that uh, passage in chapter uh, 19 when Paul was in Ephesus. And we saw uh, a couple weeks ago what true revival looks like in the description there of the revival at Ephesus. That true revival is guys genuine conversions. There's going to be genuine conversions. True revival is going to emphasize sound doctrine and the normal means of grace. True revival is going to be marked by genuine spiritual power, not by gimmicks and humorics. True revival, then, is going to also confront idols, the idols that are in our lives. Um, and then there's a transition here, and Paul is giving a farewell to the, he called, the church he spent the most time with uh, on the third missionary journey, Ephesus, and he calls the elders of that church together and gives them what he believes is the last time he speaks to them in a farewell speech. And when those type of things times come, you really give, if you think it's going to be the last time you talk to somebody, you know, if you say the last time you ever see someone, what do you want to tell them? It's usually going to be a summation of things, like I love you, I miss you, or something like this. And Paul shares this, my one purpose, my only aim, my goal, if only, that I would finish the task that God has given me. Complete the task the Lord Jesus has given him the summation of his life. So I ask you, what's the summation of your life? Like, what is like what your life is all about? And sometimes we, at least I do, I get so distracted with a million different other good things that it's like, what's the main thing? What's the the key? And when you have that, it kind of makes everything a little more simple. That, that my task that I've, that I've been given, and we see ourselves not as masters, but as servants. Because masters use term, master talk, they use things like success or accomplishment. Servants use words like stewardship and acceptance or task that's been given. And we're stewards. We are, we, are, we are God's, he owns everything. We're his money managers. We're his time managers of the time and the, the, he, the resources he's given us. And we accept that as our duty. Uh, I'm reading a, a book on leadership from uh, Dr. Anderson that, from Appalachian that came up, has been here. Uh, and he talks about the, that, true, that servant leadership is, is seeing, accepting that. What's the task God's called you to do today? And what is that role? And really, Paul kind of has that heart. He has that, he's got uh, my, my only aim, my purpose, a single ambition, a single focus. My one passion is to do what God's called me to do. I have only one person to please. Uh, not, not a lot of people to impress, but one person to please, and that's it. And really, life becomes extremely simple when you have that singular focus, that one passion, that what, doing what God's called you to do. See, um, we tend to get so spread out with this and have a million different things going on or think that we have this, and I was thinking about this week, this kind of, uh, this one passion, the summation of Paul's life, and uh, so, uh, as you guys know, it gets it, it, it kind of noisy here during the week, so I try to drown it out if I'm in my office with, like, music or uh, ear muffler things, like, from weed-eating type things and uh, stuff like that, and so I have this study music playlist, and um, this is not going to be spiritual, but it gets to the point here. 
Um, <clears throat> so I have this study music playlist, and I get distracted because I have ADD and all this stuff. I get distracted. So if there's words to music, so I usually listen to instrumental stuff. But then if I know the words, they're running through my head, and I get distracted anyway. But I'm a little bit of a nerd, if you didn't know that already. Um, and so I like – have you heard of the piano guys? where they do, like, covers of, like, Star Wars themes and stuff like that, you know, and then they have cello wars, and they have, like, and they do videos about it. It's kind of a dorky thing, but they're really cool. So I have them on my study music playlist. And they did this thing where they did a mashup of um, uh, Lauren Platten's fight song. You know what I'm talking about? Are you spiritual people? Not, not Okay. They did a mashup of that with Amazing Grace. And it was really kind of cool how they did that. Like, this is my fight song, Amazing Grace. And, and the idea of, like, kind of a fight song is kind of that one song that it unifies everybody. This is our thing. It was something we cheer around, or it's kind of my driving force. And so, in a sense, this idea is like Paul's fight song. Like, this is my one thing. This is my deal. This is what I'm giving my life to, to finish my only aim. This is my, um, this course that I have. And so what is your fight song? Now, you might have one that's a song, a literal song that might be important to you. Maybe you're a couple and you have like a particular song that is like your, your song, um, um, maybe you, Jamie and I kind of have a parenting song. This is an old country song that you're going to miss this. And usually when we're hectic between soccer matches and we're trying to grab something, we'll lean over and you're going to miss this. <laughs> and, and, and something like that. Or maybe a football, you know, I remember in high school there were certain songs that everybody came out to and that was like your thing. What's kind of your life's fight song? Um, they often say that, especially when it comes to hymns, that there's really just a handful of hymns that we kind of carry with us through our life, and those are kind of like our, our hymns that we've owned. Those are usually the ones you want sung at your funeral. Well, what's your fight song? Paul really kind of has this, his summation of his life. and In Psalm 90, uh, verse 12, it says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And the idea behind that psalm is to teach us to number our days is to think at the end, like, what songs are going to be at my funeral? What do I want said about me on my funeral? Um, or if you're watching pizza commercials, what do you want on your tombstone? Um, and then you, uh, you, and then you, then you kind of um, reverse engineer it backward. I'm thinking of the end and how I want to live back to what, how I'm living today. And as Martin Luther said it, there's only two days on my calendar, uh, today and that day. Uh, so just today's... And then that day that you, stand, that you stand before Christ. And so we gain wisdom when we think of that. So what do you, what's the end? And we get derailed from the goal of life. We, we, we let things like pain or distraction or someone's not appreciating us or, or fatigue or we think we're not being successful or it's not working or we haven't seen the results we wanted or we get divided hearts that we want comfort instead of following, taking up our cross or we want and pleasure instead of taking, we we're, we're divided as James would say. And, and so we often go and we need to get back to that fight song. We need a big idea. We need to find what God has called us to do and then give everything else to completing that task, like Paul says here. So what does it look like to live with this type of summation of life? What does that look like? And I think this is cool because this is a challenge to me, and I'm getting away from my notes here, which is, that's okay, um, that 
rather than think reality, you might go be the type of person that's like, you got to fix everything and you got to control every detail in the world and everything about your kids and every decision your kids ever make or uh, everything that's going on in our town. And you got to fix, you know, what is wrong with the systems of our town of why this particular pothole has not been filled yet and, and figure out every problem and, and, and just control everything. And you're probably stressing out thinking of all these details. Or you're the person that's just like, forget it all, you know, whatever. And, and really, this is, the answer is for both of us to what's God called me to do. And to do that, play your role. And, 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 and that God has given each one of you certain gifts, talents, callings that he's put on your life. And to find those and give yourself to that. And Paul's life here in Acts chapter 20 really gives us a picture of what does it look like to live with this type of life summation, this kind of one goal, this one aim, this single focus in mind. And so we go back to verse 1. The first six verses of this chapter actually seem like they're not really that important. A lot of geography and a little background, but there's not a doctrine or an application. And in verses 7 to 16 of the passage they get a little more entertaining. They have this really cool story about Eutychus. But still, you're like, okay, what's the point of that? Um, and, uh, and honest, it's tempting, to, it's tempting to just kind of mention those things and then move on to the latter part of the chapter, which is kind of what I wanted to do when I was looking at this at the beginning of the week. And many do. A lot of commentaries do. Uh, some of my favorite commentators actually just simply allegorized it and made a little thing and then moved on. But then I'm thinking one of the things Paul says is in this passage is that I didn't neglect to give you the full counsel of God. So I'm like, okay, you can't skip seven verses and get to the part where the guy says I'm not skipping verses. He's <laughs> like, it's kind of like, all right, I gotta, we gotta dig in there and not read between the lines and not allegorize. But what's the point of those passages there? And so he got convicted about that and felt, okay, we just need to find the lesson here. And so let's go to chapter 20 and verse one. It says, after the uproar ceased, Paul, this is the uproar in Ephesus, you know, when the uh, local silversmiths union got together because you were messing with their wages there, and they, after that uproar had ceased, he's, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions and had much encouragement, he came to Greece. And he spent three months. And when, and when a plot against him by the Jews... As he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return to Macedonia. Sophiter, the Marian, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and, Th- and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus, Sacudanus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus, and Trophimus. These went ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And wasn't that a devotionally rich text? Did you get a lot out of that? It's a big, big blessing there, right? And you're like, what are we supposed to learn from that? It seems like a geography lesson and a bunch of guys' names. What's the point of this? Well, I think there's an encouraging example that Paul has for us here. In these details are some great gems for us to observe. The first, is that, the first is that Paul's commitment to serve God by serving others comes through. He has given himself to serving the church. Through, he says later on that I served you with many tears and great travail. 
Sometimes we think that Paul's life and ministry was just great. He just went here and a bunch of people got saved and went here and a bunch of people got saved and churches were just popping up, you know, every, everywhere he went and it was just kind of easy, you know, go make a couple tents, go plant a couple churches, then go have coffee, you know, that was his day, right? No, Paul doesn't see, in, in, you don't see in the, the, the ministry of Paul, lots of people coming in mass conversions. You see that with Peter. You don't see that with Paul. Paul, it's like, you know, if they don't drag him out and stone him, it was a good day, right? Or like a couple people come up afterwards and say, we're going to believe. It wasn't like he was seeing these huge results. And it wasn't like Paul's life was without conflict. I mean, in fact, so it says here they're in Macedonia. And where they're going here to Troas, this is where he'd originally received that Macedonian call, that vision, come over to Macedonia. He's in Philippi here. But he had had considerable conflict with the church at Corinth. You see some of the things he wrote in the first, first and second Corinthians. There was some considerable conflict with the church, and he was worried. I mean, Paul was human just like everyone else. In fact, when he had written to them, he hadn't heard from them, and he was like, he, they talked about his harsh letter that came to them, and the, his, so he thought he had had this, um, and so he was even regretted, actually, in Second Corinthians 2. He talks about how he regretted maybe sending that letter that it came across too hard. You ever been there? You sent that email? And they kind of go, the teens told me what the word is when you ignore someone's text. I forget what it was, but some cool term that I don't know. But you don't hear anything and you're like, oh no, they're upset. And you're worried, like, okay, they're they're ignoring me. They didn't respond to that text message. Did it come across? Did did I say it in the wrong way? And you go back and you reanalyze it 50 times. And you're like, oh no, what happened? Paul's experiencing that as well. He's not heard back. He's not hearing from the Corinth, and he's not sure. In fact, even some of his travels is kind of avoid that. Like, oh, I'm not sure I should go there. Maybe I should sail past here because of this. And then he sends Titus to kind of check it out and see if he could feel it out. And then he's encouraged later when he see when when Titus comes back and 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 hears about this church. But he's leaving Ephesus. He doesn't go to Corinth. He sends Titus to kind of test the waters. And then there's the three months that they're there and uh, the, the restoration comes and he goes and spends that time with the church at Corinth and well, it's when 2 Corinthians is written and when he writes that theological magnum opus of the epistle to the Romans, he writes that from there. So he's very busy. But he's on the, at the other side of this, so he's, but he's also got a lot of conflict and relational tension, but there's also a lot of administrative logistics going on because remember, they're in this big process of taking this collection back to Jerusalem, the church. All the, the, the collection, the offerings you read about uh, at Philippi, the Thessalonians, and the Corinthians. So there's a, lot of, there's a lot of church work going on here. There's a lot of logistics and administrative things. But in the midst of that, when he could say, oh, I'm just tired of this, I'm sick of this, he takes time to give encouraging words. In verse 2 there, it says that when he'd gone through those regions, have given them much encouragement. Giving them many encouraging words. Um, it's vital. A ministry in, in, a, the, in discipleship is to encourage people, and the principal means by which it's done is by the word of God, giving much word. John Stott said that nothing encourages and strengthens the people of God like the word of God. So he goes about encouraging them. And then it talks in verse 4 about these companions or the collection of saints. And it gives all these different names of these different ones. 
And these are probably representatives from the churches that were uh, kind of the, uh, giving accountability for the funds and the offering that was being taken, and also for protection. I mean, Paul's taking these funds back to Jerusalem. He needs protection there, and, um, and uh, so they didn't have FDIC insurance on their accounts. They had to make sure they had a few, uh, some muscle with them as they traveled. And so um, Paul's traveling companions are noteworthy to us. It's noteworthy for us that Paul hardly ever traveled alone. That he favored a teamwork mentality. And we've mentioned several times throughout Acts that ministry is a team sport. Especially during Paul's missionary journeys. He always often had a team with him. In the first missionary journey, he had Barnabas and John Mark. And of course, remember the story of John Mark deserting them. And later on, it took a long time for that to come back. In the second missionary journey, he had Silas. And later on, Timothy. And then Luke comes and joins them along the way. And, and then in the third missionary journey, he has Luke as well as the list of all these other men that we've read. These nine different men that we, are in this passage. And they seem to be like they are uh, fruits of the mission work that's been going on around in this region while they're in Ephesus. And but also, they're also agents of the mission. I mean, there's a, th- a, a, a principle there for us that the missionary-mindedness of the early church, how they're, they're committed to this and that the ministry is being done with and by those that are already there and those that they're winning and reaching and that there's this, 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 this mentality that, I mean, they're, they're in, they have some of these key leaders that have grown up in these churches that are newly planted and established, but then they're sending those uh, leaders out to help with the mission work other places. It's like, all right, we finally got something good going on here at our church. Let's pick our best leaders and send them somewhere else. You're like, no! But the, but the early church had that mentality. It wasn't about an individual kingdom. It was about the kingdom. And there's some, there, I think there's a huge lesson in that example for us there of the teamwork amongst the churches. So when we say that ministry is a team sport, what does that make you think? Do you really want to be on that team? Um, in the book, The Trellis and the Vine, uh, he mentions that church members are often opposed to the idea of team ministry for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we like the mentality of, all right, we're going to pay two or three people to do this work, and then the rest of us will just focus on our careers and tithe, and then that'll take care of everything. And we kind of like that mentality, if we're even doing that. Right. Um, and or we, we, we have this mentality that there has to be like the, an elite different subset of clergy that do the work. Um, and, you know, like if uh, the, the pastor's gone and somebody else preaches, it was like not a, a real deal or something. Uh, and we have that mentality that that's not how the New Testament sees that as a team. And we're going to talk more about that next week. Um, or, uh, or that we'll see that, that training a team is distracting, uh, or that, that, that you're not giving your time to doing what you ought to be doing if you're, if you're working with other people, um, and, and trying to, to disciple and bring them into it or, and, and raise them up. Uh, oh, if the pastor's, you know, working with interns or training some other people, well, then he's not going to be visiting me as much. We can't have that, Right. Um, and it's like, no, this is about building a team that's important because ministry is a team sport. Um, so they have this whole group of men that are here, and they minister for seven days in this city of Troas. And so let's um, pick, up, pick up our reading there 
in verse 7. I'm sorry, back to verse 6. And we sailed from Philippi after these days of unleavened bread, and five days he came to them at Troas, where they stayed for seven days. So they're waiting for him at Troas. They meet there, and they have seven days of team ministry there. Now, this Troas is an important city. It's, this is an adjacent city to Troy. This is um, where he received the Macedonian call. This is, uh, there's this joyous reunion. He has all his travel companions. Uh, cool little Bible trivia about... Um, Troas, when Paul is in jail in Rome and he writes Timothy in 2 Timothy and he says, um, Timothy, bring the books and my cloak. He says, I left it in Troas in Carpus's house. And so a lot of people think, well, maybe that was the person's house that they met in. Um, so, and so uh, there's, there's, there's a very different group. The, the, if you look at the different names, where they're from, all these different cities of these different men that are here, they're very spread out. They're not the same. They don't look the same, talk the same, eat the same, have the same preferences, but they are one in Christ, and that's what the church is. And so then they, uh, and they minister here this week with Paul as their leader. And then we come to verse 7. It says, On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. And there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep, as Paul talked still longer. And being down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took forth the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asus, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged intending himself to go by land. And they met us at Asus. We took him on board and went into uh, Mylidi. And sailing from there, we came to the following opposite Chios. The next day, we touched at Samos. And after that, we went to Miletus, and Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. This passage, this section here about this fellow named Eutychus um, is kind of a, uh, a, this is one of Jamie's favorite stories in the Bible, uh, this guy falling asleep at the church service. My dad, when I was young, he worked for the Chessie system, and in the mid-'80s, all the floods and stuff, and especially over in the eastern part of the state, he spent a lot of time working over there. And he tells a story about how at that time he was invited to special meetings with this short evangelist named Ron Comfort. Um, and he, but he was working the railroad. And when you work a labor job and you're on your feet all day long, if you get in a room with a lot of warm bodies and you sit for a while, you know what happens? You fall asleep. And my dad says that he was sitting probably near the back of this service, and, and Dr. Comfort says, young man, wake up. And he said there was like, he thought there was like a whole group of them that were like, oh, <laughs> you know, that was us, you know. Uh, maybe, have you ever fallen asleep in church? Um, 
Yeah, you fall asleep during a service. You probably, because it's just confession's good for the soul, anybody. Just go ahead. All right. This is a funny thing. It happens to the best of us. Uh, I was in college one time, and there was a guy that fell asleep, and some guys pranked him, and they were like, they woke him up, and they said, hey, they asked you to pray. And the guy stands up and starts praying in the middle of everything and kind of embarrassed himself. And um, Anyway, but you know, I really feel bad for Eutychus because... Um, he really gets a bad rap because most of us have probably at one point in class or church or something like that fallen asleep, dozed off, something like that. And, and you know, maybe the worst thing that happens is, you know, you get a little drool on your, on your sleeve or you kind of you jerk your neck or you hit something or someone teases you about it or, you know, that type of thing. Or you kind of moan and, you know, someone starts to snore and everybody's like, what's going on? Um, and it happens to everybody, but the worst thing, you, you don't want to get caught doing it. So, so, so you kind of do some games with it. You kind of you could, you could go like, amen, amen, you know, or something like that, or that's good, that's good, that's good, you know. Um, do something to kind of go along with it, but you don't want to get caught. The worst thing that you could happen is that you get caught. So if you're going to get caught by somebody, you definitely don't want to get caught by somebody that's going to record it, whether with a camera or write it down. So like, there have been thousands of people in the history of Christianity that have fallen asleep in church. And this may well have been Eutychus's first and only time to fall asleep in church. He's probably between 8 and 14 years old. He's a young man. And he falls asleep. And not only is it like the worst, quant- he's not just getting drool on his sleeve. He literally dies from it. Um, but if you're going to get caught by somebody, Luke is there and writes it down in the book of Acts. So that everybody for the rest of history will know him as the guy that fell asleep in church. So when we all see Eutychus in heaven one day and we're like, you're the guy that fell asleep in church. And he's like, it was only one time. You know, it's like for the rest of his life. It's like, poor guy, right? You know, um, but so the story here is that he is, Paul is sleeping from from sunset. Now remember, the Lord's Day, they worshiped on Sunday for Christological reasons, but they worshiped often in the evening because of just sociological reasons, because they worked. They, people got off work, they came in the evening, and they'd have that time of meal because they worked. Because remember, it was a Jewish culture, so Sunday was the first day of the work week, and so uh, they, they still had to go to work. So they scheduled the service to be convenient for the folks there to come in the evening. So they're there in the evening, and Paul preaches. Now, I'm going to give Paul a break because he thinks this is going to be the last time he ever sees him, so he's got to get it all in, right? But he preaches from sunset till midnight. And some of you all complain if we go past noon. And I kind of want to be a little snarky and say, did anyone die? Quit complaining, you know? Um, ironically, Eutychus's name means lucky or fortunate. That's the funniest thing there. That's kind of a little nerd thing. But anyway, so he's up, and you think it's stuffy, Middle Eastern climate. Uh, they have a lot of lamps. Lamps suck out oxygen. They also increase heat. And so he climbs up to the third floor to the window. Now, we often see windows as things you look through. But remember, window, the word comes from two words, wind, door. To put a door in the house, to let wind come through, to let some air. So he's just trying to get some fresh air. He falls asleep and falls out of the third story and dies. So what are we supposed to do with this story of Eutychus? What's the point? 
And I wrestled with that. What's the point? It's a really cool story. Um, is it a warning for preachers not to um, preach long sermons or you'll kill people? Um, I heard about this one pastor that was having surgery, and it, the anesthesiologist, while he's in there with him before the surgery, he says, hey, you and I are in the same line of work. We both put people to sleep. <laughs> and, um, uh, and there is some truth to that that you've got to be careful. John Newton even said, when weariness begins, edification ends. So, um, but is this like, this is an encouragement here to, uh, is this an encouragement to tell preachers to craft your sermon better, to make it more like a TED talk or a stand-up comedy routine so that you can entertain people and pack the crowds out? No, no. Uh, Maybe a crowd to avoid being dull. Um, But if saving Eutychus from being dull and falling asleep means anything, it means to help him have a fresh um, and cle- an uh, uh, appetite to the, hear the gospel. But so Paul's sermon is unusually long, and for good reason. He's thinking it's going to be the last time he, ha- he has them there. So, um, but because this took place in a worship service, I believe this does give us some instruction about Christian worship. Now, it's prescriptive. It's, not descript- it's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not telling us, do this. Have people sit in the windows at church. No, it's not saying that. But it does give us what they're doing. So one of the principles is that they meet on the first day of the week. And it says there in verse 2 that they came, the, uh, verse 8, that they came together. And that they were hearing the word of God. You know, there are, there are groups uh, like the Seventh-day Adventists in the, um, that would worship and claim that we still need to worship on Saturday. There's also groups like uh, Seventh-day Baptists, uh, which is actually a very small group uh, that we know about here in this part of the country. They, they came in uh, Salem, West Virginia, and Salem College, and of course there's some of the Seventh-day Baptist groups still around here. Uh, they were migrants from New Jersey, and so beware of people that move from New Jersey to West Virginia, right? Um, I, saw, I was down at Jackson's Mill Jubilee, and some of the groups in that area were migrants from New Jersey. You've got to watch them, right? Um, but the important question then is, you say, okay, well, we worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. Okay. But it's important for us to say why. Is, I mean, you think of all of the laws. Of, I mean, this is one of the Ten Commandments. I mean, all the laws of keeping the, keeping the Sabbath to keep it holy. So who do we think we are to change from Saturday to Sunday as the primary day of worship? And so is there apostolic sanction for changing the day of the assembly of God's people from Saturday to Sunday. And this is one of the evidences in the New Testament that the early church did this. We see this right after Jesus of them, the disciples gathering on the Lord's Day on Sunday uh, in the upper room. And also here that the early church, and Justin Martyr even tells us by the second century, it was almost universal that Christians met on what they started referring to as the Lord's Day. John, when on Patmos, in the beginning of Revelation, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And I mentioned earlier that they, they are meeting because of Christ. Because of the resurrection, we think of that connection with the risen Christ with our Sunday gatherings. And then that they came together. They came together. This is what Christians do. They get together on the Lord's Day. There's instruction for us for that. That it wasn't a, oh, if I feel like it or I need the entertainment that day or don't have anything else. This is what Christians have done. It's what part of being part of that family, it means. And then that the, one of the primary means by which they were gathering for in the events was the word of God being taught to them. 
the ministry of the word, and then the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And they also have a fellowship meal, kind of like what we're having next Sunday. And they might have had it more frequently than we do. Uh, but, uh, but that idea, it's an important thing. And we don't skip that. But it's important that what edified and built the church up, to remember, was the word of God and the normal means of grace and the ordinances. So prayer, the word, fellowship. This is what builds the church. We don't need circuses and gimmicks and things. This is what God has given the church. And we can see this from the story of Eutychus, of what they did. But I do want to caution those that fall asleep in church often. And I mean this, I, I know everybody's going to struggle, and I've been there, and so this isn't like beating up on anyone that falls asleep or anyone's nodding off. But I do want to kind of lean in. If you are someone who is spiritually sleepy, you're, you, you, you just, it's, it's a regular thing that you get bored with church and the gathering of God's people. Not just something an occasional, you're tired, you worked hard, you had a labored job, and you know, but those that find it boring and look for excuses. And this all, sometimes this is like, um, you know, excuses of like, oh, we can't come to actually to the service. But also sometimes there are people that, in the, that are there at church because they're supposed to do, but they find excuses to not be there during the preaching. You know, like, oh, I'll volunteer for nursery every Sunday. You know, I, I have known of, not, not here, but, um, but I've known of churches where there have been ladies that have not sat in the preaching part of a service in years because they're always in some type of serving thing. Um, and that is not good. I mean, we can be, you can say, well, I'm not one of those people that just stayed home. Oh, but we're doing the same thing. We can find the same thing. But if you find yourself in that to where you're, there's not that interest in being under the word of God, there we might be a sleepy spiritual Christian. Is there an interest in God's word being taught in your life? Or does it bore you? That you're always thinking, well, they need to like spice this thing up a little bit. And as Spurgeon said that there'd be a time that comes when, when shepherds are not feeding God's sheep, but they're uh, clowns entertaining the goats. And if you're always thinking, well, I need to have some guy entertain me, um, or you may be spiritually asleep. Um, if I'm with somebody, and this has happened at least two times in my life since being married that Jamie has gracefully reminded me about a septillion times, I believe now, um, that we've had company come over and I've been sitting on the couch and the conversation wasn't engaging with me, I guess. And the TV was on, or there we had just eaten or something, and I fell asleep. One time with family, and another time we had guests over, and I fell asleep sitting on the couch while we had company. And you know what my wife has told me that that was? Rude. How rude. How rude that was. Um, if you fall asleep while someone's talking, we consider it rude to that person, Right? Now, it's not the individual, but if there is a, something that every time, no matter who it is you're hearing preach, that you're falling asleep often, that there's an offense that God might take to every time his word's being talked about, that you're like, oh, when they're going to get over this, can't they put like, you know, can't they do like a commercial break with some music every 15 minutes or a video clip in the middle of the sermon or something like this to spice this deal up, you know? Um, in, but I'm going to fall asleep. So if you are prone to fall asleep on a regular basis, and there's some prying questions I think you might need to ask yourself about the state of your soul. 
When we, if you're, are you awake spiritually? It, when we sing together, are you like, oh, this is boring. Oh, when we pray together, you're like kind of dozing off. Or when we're hearing God's word, the, whole, the word of God is designed to wake us up spiritually, right? All right, so I'm, I'm going to move on from that. And uh, this is a hard message if anyone's feeling drowsy right now because you're like, he's talking about me. <laughs> um, anyway, but Paul talks about this, and he sees this in this episode of Eutychus. And then, he, but he says here how he sails past Ephesus, and he comes to this city of Miletus, an important city. And he calls there. He sends, in verse 17, and from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. Now, this is from the church at Ephesus. And they came to him, and he said to them. Now, he didn't go to Ephesus. He spent a lot of time there, but he did call for these elders to come about 30 miles to meet with him there. And it is there that he gives this statement, this challenge to the Ephesian elders. And where he also says what we shared his fight song, that I don't count my life valuable to myself. I want to finish my course, my, the ministry I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. And we're going to pick up with that charge. That charge there is the only, th- th- this charge here, in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, this charge to the Ephesian elders is the only speech, as it were, in the book of Acts directed to Christians. The others are all directed to either missionary, uh, evangelistic, but this is directed to Christians. And we're going to pick up there next week and look at that challenge, that charge to the Ephesian elders. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this story of Paul's summation of his life, his fight song. And Lord, he lived this life with a singular focus. And we thank you for the example of that that he's given us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live our lives this week with one passion, with one goal of doing what you've called us to do, to testify to the gospel, the grace of God, in whatever way you've called us to. We all have a vocation of wherever we work, whatever our hands find to do, that it is not just to earn income and... um, give us a comfortable life, but it is to advance the kingdom, and that every one of us are called to that this week. Lord, would you give us singularity of of purpose? Lord, would you give us a passion to live a life like Paul did? Lord, as he followed Christ, that we'd find our identity in Christ, not in um, other things, Lord, and because we're in Christ, we can be transparent about our struggles, about our failings, about our weakness because the gospel is this message that you are taking our weakness and using it for your glory and we come to you lord we thank you so much for this passage thank you for these the the teamwork that we see in paul the example of encouragement that he's given here thank you for the story of eutychus lord lord that we would remember that this is what your church has done we gather and we encourage one another we fellowship one another and we Look to your word to grow and encourage us. Lord, help us to not be dull or bored by that, to not fall asleep to it, but to let the word of God awaken us from spiritual lethargy. And Lord, if there's someone here that doesn't know you, they're not awakened spiritually, 
Lord, I pray that they would look to Christ, depend upon Christ, and believe on Christ today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, today, we are not going to be like Paul and preach till midnight. And I wanted to make sure I at least had some type of illustration of that. So we are done early today. And I want to encourage you to stick around and fellowship with one another. Okay? God bless. Have a great week.